I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Imagine discovering an abandoned car only to find two lifeless bodies inside. A mother and her teenage daughter. The seemingly perfect family, shattered by dark secrets and a twisted plot that's going to leave you questioning everything you thought you knew. In this chilling true crime story, we unravel the mind of the murderous mastermind, the betrayal of a once-loving husband, and the lengths one man would go to to free himself from the shackles of a deteriorating marriage. This is the haunting tale of the Yoga Ball murders, a chilling reminder that evil can lurk behind even the most ordinary of facades. And with that, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist, everybody. I, as always, am your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome. George has written this one for me, The Yoga Ball Murders. Those intros. <laughs> Since I started doing it, it feels so dramatic. And now, in today's episode, but I love it. And I, I did it because I wanted to hook people in and get people excited about the episode rather than just immediately just leave off, you know, start off the episode with me rambling away. George has written this for me. Yoga Ball Murders. I already said that. Normally, when there's one of these, you're like, you know, this this title structure, it'd be like the Greyhound murder. You're like, well, the murder occurred on a Greyhound, then, didn't it? You know that sort of stuff. But yoga ball? How does someone get killed with a yoga ball? Isn't that the thing people sit on in offices? Or I, I mean, I've I've been to yoga. Like I've seen people do yoga. Uh, I've always had. Isn't a yoga mat the thing? What do you do with the yoga ball? Anyway, let's just jump in. At 3.35pm on the 22nd of May 2015, Tang Yu Ling, a nurse at Shatin Hospital. This hospital called Shatin. Ah. Uh, was dri- <laughs> Sorry, I'm a child. Was driving down Saishan Road after a long and tiring shift serving the ill and the infirm of Hong Kong. Her exhaustion, coupled with the miserable wet weather, was making her want to get home with all due haste. But she was still very much aware of her surroundings, so she couldn't help but notice something odd. In the road ahead of her, a yellow Mini Cooper parked at an unusual angle in a bus stop to the side of the road. Its engine was idling, and its windscreen wipers were still operating. And what's more, there was seemingly no one inside of it. She glanced at the unusual scene as she passed, but saw nothing that would cause any alarm, so she continued on her way and didn't panic. At least not yet. Yeah, that's fair. I'd see that. I'd see that yellow Mini Cooper. If there was a car like, just parked in a bus stop, I'd probably slow down and be like, what's going to like, rubberneck it? Like, What's going on over here? And then I'd just be like, there's no one there. It's probably just a dude having a slash. Is that an American? Do you say that in America? It means having a piss, having a whiz, taking a leak. (laughs) The panic came 40 minutes later at 4.15pm when she came back down the same road and the Mini was still sitting there in the exact same manner as before. But now the rain had stopped, so the tilt still turning wipers naturally attracted her curiosity. She slowed her car down as she approached to get a better look at the situation, and she was shocked to discover that contrary to her initial assessment, the car was anything but abandoned, as both the driver and passenger were still inside, slumped down in the seats. At that point, that's when I called the police. Like, at first I'd be like, okay, so the car's been there a while. And I'd probably, it's bad, I'd probably have this internal discussion with myself, being like, no, 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 it's fine, probably nothing going on. It's fine. Everything's good. And I'd slow down and take a real good look. But if I didn't see the people slumped there, is it bad that I'd be like, oh, it's probably fine. The bus is going to come along every now and again. And the guy who drives the bus works for the city. He'll know who to call. And I mean, it's not going to make a difference because I'm assuming these people are dead, right? But still, it makes me wonder, like, should I call the police at that point? Look, if I saw the people slumped in the seats, I'd be like, okay, it's time to make a call to the constabulary. Immediately knowing that something was wrong, she slammed her car to a halt, slapped on her hazard warning lights, 
and sprinted over to the car to better assess the situation. She knocked on the window lightly at first, reasoning that the pair might only be asleep. But when they failed to respond, she knocked even louder and harder. She quickly realized that the pair were not going to wake up, so she opted to take a more direct approach, swinging the car door open before pouncing on the pair, desperate to get some kind of response from them. But I guess this is what you would do, right? Because I'd call the police. I guess I'd call the police first. Like, I'd call an... Or I, I think I guess I'd be calling... I, w- I don't know. I'm thinking of police because I'm presenting a show called The Casual Criminalist. But the reality is I probably think it's an accident, so I'd call an ambulance. Right, you'd call an ambulance. Be like, yeah, 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 I need an ambulance. And they'd be like, we're on our way, sir. Um, And then I'd go over. But her efforts were to no avail. No matter how hard she prodded or shook them, they were not responding. Fearing the worst, she then checked their vital signs, and mercifully, she found a pulse on both of them, albeit a very faint one. Oh, she's a nurse, right, of course. Her options exhausted. Tang Yu Ling did all she could in that situation and called an ambulance, pleading with them to get to the scene as soon as possible before turning her attention back to the pair and desperately trying to get them to respond once again. A crowd began to form around the scene as Yu Ling's efforts grew more and more frantic, and one man, a passing jogger, emerged from the crowd to assist. His efforts, too, came to naught. Fortunately, they were reasonably close to shat in hospice. <laughs> Ah. So it took mere minutes for an ambulance to arrive, and the unconscious pair were soon en route to the emergency room. Police officers and firefighters soon arrived in their wake, fearing that the situation was some kind of road traffic accident. They soon realized that it wasn't, and so the firefighters departed, leaving the police on scene to try and find some clues that would allow them to get to the bottom of this strange situation. But alas, they found no clues. They did, however, recover the Hong Kong identity cards of the pair, revealing them to be 47-year-old Kwa Siu Fing and her daughter, 16-year-old Kwa Li Ling. Meanwhile, over at Shatin Hospital, Xiu Feng and Li Ling had just arrived. They were both still unresponsive, but they were alive, and so they were rushed straight to the emergency theater, where the hospital's doctors did everything in their power to try and save the pair, but alas, their efforts were in vain, as both Xiu Feng and Li Ling were too far gone to recover and their vital signs continued to fade even further until they eventually faded altogether. They were formally declared dead at 5.30pm. To make matters even more tragic, Siu Feng's husband and Li Ling's father, Kwa Kim Sun, worked at that very hospital as an anesthesiologist, and he was on shift when they were admitted, but despite his close proximity to the unfolding tragedy and being immediately informed of their situation, he was unable to make it to either of them before they passed, only finding his way to the morgue at 8.30pm after his shift had ended. That is f***ing brutal. Jesus. The mortician on duty that evening noted a bizarre calmness in Kim Sun, one bordering on total disinterest in this situation. The mortician thought little of this at the time, attributing it to emotional overload, completely understandable in the light of the tragedy that he had just suffered. Little did that mortician know, however, Kim Sun's disinterest was the result of a dark secret that he was harboring, and that secret was that he had killed them. Oh my god. No burying the lead in today's episode. Although even from the intro, I was like, there's something with the husband. He's going to extreme lengths. I mean, not that you watch these anyway and you're like, it's always the husband. The number one thing you're like, it's the husband. It's the husband or the wife. It's always them. That's the one thing I learned from CSI. This naturally raises some questions. What if could dri- what could have driven a husband and father to commit the ultimate betrayal of those that he should have protected above all others? How did he even do it when he was working in the hospital? Those questions and more we shall answer for you today as we unravel the mystery of the case that gripped Hong Kong in the mid-2010s the yoga ball murders. So let's begin, though, by rewinding the tape back to the very beginning of the story and have a look at the situation within the core family. Chapter 1. Meet the Cause 
patriarch of the family was Kuo Kim Sun, a Malaysian-born anesthesiologist and academic who was born on the 19th of January 1953 in Penang, Malaysia. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Malaya in Kuala Lumpur in 1978 and went on to complete his postgraduate studies in anesthesiology in the United Kingdom. Anesthesiology feels like one of those words you look at it and it's like, oh, there's no chance I'm pronouncing that right first time around. And it's like not that difficult. Nailing that shit. After completing his studies, Kim Sun returned to Malaysia and worked as a consultant anesthetist in the Penang General Hospital. In 1989, he moved to Hong Kong and joined the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Shat In. <laughs> yeah, no, now I'm making it sound even worse on purpose, aren't I? He later picked up a side gig as a professor of anesthesiology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He was known for his research in the field of anesthesiology, particularly in the use of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. Have you ever done nitrous oxide? <laughs> I've done it a few times. And it's always like, it's laughing gas. I, I don't know how this was legal. When I was a student, you go out to like a nightclub or whatever, and they'd sell that. Like, I guess because it's not, not illegal. But it always surprised me that you could just go up and there'd be someone selling like, uh, they'd inflated into a big balloon and then you'd breathe it in and you'd be like you'd just be laughing and it's like there's nothing funny and you'd just be laughing and it's like it's actually incredible don't do drugs <laughs> sells drugs hard says don't do drugs i'm sorry okay i'm sorry i'm just telling it like it is <coughs> look everyone knows drugs are great because otherwise people wouldn't be addicted to drugs would they i mean i don't mean drugs are great they're probably detrimental for society at least a lot of drugs but like look if, if they weren't if they weren't enjoyable would they be that popular? Like, everyone understands, like, nicotine is super addictive and cigarettes are bad for you. But if nicotine wasn't awesome, like, people are like, oh, it's just addictive. And I'm like, no. Like, nicotine's really nice. <laughs> like, that's why people like it. That's why people use it. What are you talking about? He published numerous articles in international medical journals discussing his speciality, such as inhaled nitrous oxide and prevention of hypoxia during intubation in elective caesarean delivery, a randomized control trial, and the role of nitric oxide in hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. God damn. Would you believe it if I told you there wasn't an edit there? I just got those right first time. God, sometimes I, I think, you know, sometimes I'm just like, I don't even know how to read. And sometimes I'm just like, I'm a reading god. The S expertise won him worldwide acclaim, and he was often invited to speak at conferences and seminars around the world. Apart from his academic work, Kim Sung also was an avid sportsman. He was a skilled runner and often participated in marathons across Asia. Is skilled the right way to describe a runner? Like, I've, I've not run a marathon. That would be that would be telling a lie. I've run a half marathon. And it's like, set a decent time. But I wouldn't describe myself as a skilled runner. I'd describe myself as just a runner. Like, you run. There's, is there really much skill to it? It's like, you run. And the more you run, the better you get at it. Until then you get your body ruined. And then you get worse at it. I had shin splints for a while. It's very unpleasant. <laughs> He also enjoyed hiking and had climbed several peaks in the Himalayas. Jesus, what is this? His dating profile. Kimson's wife and matriarch of the family was Kuo Siu Fing, born in 1968 in Penang, Malaysia. She was the eldest of three siblings and by all accounts was raised in a close-knit and loving family. Her parents instilled in her the importance of compassion, education, and family values. These lessons would go on to shape her life and inform her approach to parenting. Growing up in the bustling streets of Penang, Kuo Siu Fing was exposed to the rich tapestry of flavors and aromas that the city had to offer. Her mother, an excellent cook herself, taught her the secrets of traditional Malaysian cuisine. These formative years spent in the kitchen with her mother ignited a lifelong passion for cooking and experimenting with new recipes. I've been to Malaysia, actually. 
kind of totally forgot about that. I've been to Kuala Lumpur and some other places. It's an interesting country. Good food. She attended St. George's Girls' School, a well-regarded institution in Penang. Here, she excelled in her studies and participated in a variety of extracurricular cultures, uh, sorry, activities, including sports and the choir. Her teachers and peers remember her as a bright and diligent student, always eager to help others and contribute to the community. In 1988, they moved to Kuala Lumpur to attend the prestigious University of Malaya, where she studied nursing. During her time at university, she met Kwa Kim Sung. The two quickly became inseparable, and after graduation, they decided to build a life together and tied the knot in 1992 in the UK. The couple eventually moved to Hong Kong, settled down, and started a family, with Siu Ping embracing a role as a dedicated mother and homemaker. Her early life experiences, combined with a strong family values provided the foundation upon which she would try to create a warm and nurturing environment for her own family. The pair would go on to have four children, three girls and a boy. Three of their children we shall not name or provide a biography for us. They're still alive and well to this day and we don't wish to invade their privacy by bringing undue attention to them. Excellent. Yeah, I always do this. I think like, I don't remember if it's George, it probably wasn't George, but like early on in this show that I'd always be like, why are we naming all these people? <laughs> they got nothing to do with this. They probably just want to be left alone. <laughs> you know, like, I'm cutting this out. I'm cutting this out. <laughs> cutting this out. Because why? why? Like doxing people, as the kids call it, is not cool. Like you don't want to like bring attention to people who don't want attention brought to themselves. These aren't public figures. They're just trying to live their lives. Leave them alone. Sadly, we cannot say the same for Li Ling Kuo, Sing Feng, uh, Xu Feng and Kim Sung's middle daughter, who, as you already know, did not survive her father's crime. She was born in 1999 and is described by a surviving family as a social blood of butterfly who lit up any room she found herself in. A gifted and charismatic young woman, she found her calling in the performing arts with her talents, including acting, singing, and dancing. She was often involved in local theater productions and school performances. She also had a keen interest in fashion and was known among her friends for a unique and bold sense of style. She also had a close bond with her siblings and was especially protective of her brother. Together, the Quar children formed a close-knit and supportive unit, each with their unique talents and interests. That's nice and so sad. Like, as I'm thinking about this now, I always manage to... I'm, I, I, I don't mean to, like, drag on about it, but or, like, drag on. Just, you know, where you waffle too much. Like, I'm already known for that. But it's like, now, like, I've got two kids... And they get into that age and you see them play together. It's so nice. But you also see them fight together. And you're like, oh, I hope they like each other. It's like, come on, like each other. <laughs> no pressure. Xu Feng took immense pride in their children's accomplishments and endeavored to provide a loving and nurturing environment in which they could grow and flourish. From the outside looking in, it would be easy to assume that the cause had the most perfect and enviable life. But appearances can be deceiving. And in reality, the family was being torn apart by the disintegration of Xu Feng and Kim Sun's marriage. The collapsing marriage. There's no nice way to say it, but Kim Sung had grown tired of Siu Fing. She was 36 as of 2004, and in his opinion, her looks were disappearing fast, and he was none too happy about that fact. <laughs> Mate, do you not realize that like, people get older? It's like, that's what happens. I'm sure you also got some wrinkles. Sadly for Xu Fing, her youthful looks appear to have been a dam holding back the torrent of her husband's inner wickedness and vindictiveness. He began starting arguments over everything and anything and chastised and belittled her over everything else. It mattered not if they were in public, in private, nor if Xu Fing had even done what she was being accused of. Now that he didn't find her attractive, she was naught but a verbal punching bag to him, an inconvenience, a blight on his otherwise perfect little life, and he took every opportunity to make her aware of that cruel fact. Well... Look, I know it's no surprise to anyone because we already know this guy murder people, but he does sound like a right piece of shit. 
doesn't he? One thing that seems to have been a regular point for verbal beatings was Xu Ping's parenting. Kim Sung believed, or at least claimed to believe, that she was too soft on the children. As far as he was concerned, she was a disastrous failure of mother. And of course, he took every opportunity to tell her this. <laughs> Yesterday, my wife. <laughs> we had like the smallest, tiniest version of this. Like, I made the kids dinner. Sorry, I, I shouldn't. These stories are just not interesting, are they? I, I'm always aware that when you're listening to someone talk about their kids, it's like the most boring thing ever, especially when I didn't have kids. And then now I'm just using it because now I have kids and I was always like, no, nah, I'm not going to be that boring person talking about my kids all the time. And now I'm just like, let me tell you about dinner time. So I made the kids dinner and uh, my, our daughter didn't eat anything. She just moved it around the plate so it looked like she'd eaten stuff. And then my wife like gives her a carrot and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm giving her a carrot. And I'm like, aren't we on the same page about this? And she's like, what do you mean? It's like, we've discussed this. Because my opinion is that like, yo, if you give her a carrot, she loves carrots. If you give her a carrot after she doesn't eat the like nutritionally rounded meal that I've prepared, then she's never going to eat the nutritionally rounded meal because she always knows she's going to eat a carrot after dinner. So... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But then I didn't tell my wife she was a failure of a mother. <laughs> Xu Feng did not rise to her husband's cruelty, however. She was far too kind of a soul to meet him on his own level, and instead she blamed herself, internalizing her husband's abuse as the consequences of her own supposed failings. Xu Feng actually kept a diary during this time, and, though, and through it, we were able to get an impression of the horrific mental torture that she suffered at the hands of her husband. It's nothing short of a heartbreaking read, detailing the piece-by-piece -piece deconstruction and eventual breaking of a loving, intelligent, and independent woman at the hands of a wicked and evil man. In her diary, she continually blamed herself for the treatment she received at the hands of her husband. She commented multiple times that it was her own fault that her husband refused to take her on various overseas work trips. He claimed that she was too selfish, too stupid, and too slovenly to be put on public display at his side. Cruel criticisms that Xu Feng tragically internalized and fully believed. Wait, his wife wanted to go on work trips? Why? I don't even like going on work trips. I used like, before COVID, there was like one year where I, I swear like I traveled like almost every month I was traveling somewhere to do something for work. And this was before he had kids. And I'm like, I'd be very surprised if my wife was like, can I come with you? I'd be like, you know, it's boring, right? <laughs> and even I feel like my work travel's interesting, but it's just a lot of like me doing stuff. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to go. Why would you want to go? <laughs> This self-blaming eventually grew into self-flagellation and appears to have been tragically all-consuming during the later years of her life, as extreme and unwarranted self-criticism comes up time and time again in her diary. For example, quote, When I'm helping my kids with their homework, I'm impatient. When my husband is talking to me, I'm engrossed in watching television. I didn't listen when my husband tried to tell me he needed me. I didn't give anything back. I became selfish. I took and took. It's like, this is pretty common though right in these situations where you have like uh, an abusive partner and then somehow they like gaslight the, shit the other out of the other person so it's like no no it's my fault it's my fault he beats me it's like what the fuck never that it's nothing short of heartbreaking to read these well though the thing about being impatient with the kids in the homework <laughs> i'm like an impatient man i i am not a patient person and with kids you have to be so patient and i'm just like Okay, I just bottle it all up inside. Just make it into like a big stomach ulcer of impatience because I know that if I was like, hurry up, it wouldn't be good. It's not good because then you're getting upset at them and they don't know why you're getting upset because they're like, dad, I'm just trying to tie my laces, dad. Why can't you do it? Dad, I'm three. So you just have to bottle up that impatience inside. <laughs>
It is nothing short of heartbreak having to read these words, even more so in the knowledge of how Siu Feng's story tragically concluded. What makes it even worse, however, is that there doesn't appear to be a single grain of truth to her self-perception. The testimonies of her surviving family suggest Siu Feng was a fantastic mother who went above and beyond for her children and worked her fingers to the proverbial bone for them, even as her family collapsed around her. Her self-perception, it would seem, was entirely the product of gaslighting and abuse by her husband. Exactly. And even if it was, even if she was like, I was impatient with the kids. I was selfish. I took and took. It's probably like, even if, like, we're all entitled to be impatient and, like, watch TV and be a little bit selfish. That's okay. And it just speaks to this, like, gaslighting, how she takes these things and then blows them out of proportion to be some terrible personality traits when it's just like, it's cool. It's cool. Sometimes I'll, like, watch TV and my kids will be like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I'll be like, I'm just watching, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the film. And then I stop and I have to play with them. Which I love, which I love. God, I sound like such a dick, but it's like, you know, it's okay to be a little bit selfish sometimes. Sprinkled throughout Wong Siu Fing's tragic diary over is the occasional thin slither of hope, where she proactively tried to shake off the crushing emotional weight that had been laid upon her by her husband and tried to improve her self-image. Throughout her entries for September 2013, for example, she described how she had signed up for a self-help course called The Transformation 70 Experience, a five-day seminar that taught stress relief, uh, release tips on building a positive life and the importance of teamwork and experience sharing. This appears to have been a great help for Siu Fing as following her attendance at this course, you begin to see a positive, albeit quite quiet voice desperately trying to fight to be heard over the overwhelming negativity that otherwise filled her diary entries. Accounts of her many quarrels with her husband were no longer filled with naught but self-flagellation, but instead with positive and reassuring lines such as, I am a passionate, committed, and loving woman, a line she wrote over 26 times throughout the later entries of her diary. It reminds me of the um, Ice Friend, isn't it? Where, uh, what's his face? Chandler's listening to that meditation tape and it's like, I am a strong, confident woman. I don't need to smoke. And he becomes a strong, confident woman. <laughs> this commentary is speculative. Of course, we can make educated inferences about what she was thinking as she wrote these extracts, but ultimately, we do not know for sure. One thing that is clear beyond all doubt, however, is just how much she loved her children, as evidenced by lines such as, I needed to tell my children I loved them very much, that mummy was going to be more responsible from now on, be a caring person, rather than an impatient one. Unbeknownst to Siu Fing, however, a try as she might, and however much she might wish for things to be different, the marriage had long been broken beyond the point of saving. Her husband had found himself a mistress back in 2004. Bro, that was like nine years before this. When he first started making things rocky. Oh my god, this shit goes on forever. Get out. Her name, and I'm sorry, that sounds like I'm blaming her. I'm not. I'm just saying I wish she had got out, obviously. Her name, Shara Lee. She was one of his PhD candidates turned lover, and the romantic relationship continued once Shara graduated and joined Kimson's team in a paid role. The illicit affair would only crescendo with time, and soon enough, Kim Sung bought them a love nest in Ma Tua Wai, and eventually he would even try to integrate Shara into his family, bringing her into the family home, home as a Chinese tutor for his children. It was nothing but cover for her to be in the house and to have his children start to build a bond with her. That is fucked up, dude. That is so fucked up. Look, people get divorced. I get it. But just do it cleanly. Why does it have to be this fucking weird, bro? It doesn't. 
Sue Fing uncovered her husband's affair in 2013, shortly after she attended the Transformation 70 Experience. I have to say, the Transformation 70 Experience sounds like some cult shit, though, doesn't it? It was ex- exposed publicly and brutally at a family friend's barbecue, and an argument ensued. This argument only ever grew more fierce by the time they got back home, and therefore the couple's four young children were dragged into the fray. This argument didn't stop for many months, only pausing when Kim Sung left the family home for work or went running off to his mistress. The non-stop arguing and complete betrayal she had suffered by the hand of her husband eventually proved too much for Su Fing, and she filed for divorce in June 2014. Good. The divorce would never be ratified, however, because even after everything he had done to her, Kim Sung refused to give a single penny in the divorce. He would either take everything, including the kids, or there would be no divorce. Um, wait, what sort of... This is 2014? What sort of rules are there in Hong Kong? That's not how it works. You're not just like, I want this and that's what I'm going to get. It's like, no, you go to court. Like, I've had friends get divorced. And it's like, and if they work it out amicably, fantastic. But if they don't, it's a nightmare of lawyers and courts and all sorts of shit. Like, you can't just be, that's what I want and I'm getting it. What's up, Hong Kong? He unfortunately, oh, we're about to find out, aren't we? Thank you, George. He unfortunately held all the power in the divorce negotiations, as he was by far the richer of the two. And rather than finally setting his long-suffering wife free and allowing her a chance at hap- happiness, he chose to orbit hold her hostage unless she agreed to leave herself completely destitute and alone. What does he mean he's by far the richer of the two? That doesn't make any sense. My wife and I are like, you know, we have money. I found find it weird to use the word rich. Um, it feels a bit weird. But, like, we have money together. It's not like we because we're married. That's the deal. <laughs> and also, like, I, well, she hasn't been my wife for the whole time, but like, we made it all together. Like, she might not be at work with me, but like, I get why half of my shit is hers. <laughs> like, that's the game. Unable to secure a fair divorce, Tzu Feng eventually backed down, and the pair settled into an uneasy peace, living in the same house, sleeping in different rooms, and only ever communicating with each other by employing their children as messengers. That sounds like it's going to be really good for the children. The children are going to love that, and it's not going to scar them or, or mess them up in any way whatsoever. What the f***, parents? Get your sh- together. If your situation is this right now, check yourself before you wreck your children. It was an arrangement that seemed to work to some degree. Peace had returned to the house, and with the help of a clinical psychologist, Su Feng was able to start piecing her life back together. She's still married and living in the same house as her abusive husband. How could she possibly start piecing her life back together? What the f***? And what the f***, Hong Kong? Why does the one who earns all the money get to make all the rules? That's an insane system. With her friends reporting that she started to seem happier in this time, enjoying quality time with her children, treating herself to nice things, and generally seeming much happier. Unfortunately, however, that is the last positive note in today's video, because while all appeared cordial on the surface, behind the scenes, Kimson was growing ever more angry and furious, and soon enough, he snapped, and the horrific events we bore witness to at the start of the video played out. The Investigation Following the tragic deaths of Xu Feng and Li Ling, the police launched an immediate and thorough investigation into the circumstances surrounding their deaths. There were no visible signs of trauma or struggle, but they weren't going to let this go and simply write it off as some kind of horrible accident. Because while they might have been lacking clear indications of foul play, it was obvious that something wasn't right here. The circumstances were just too odd. Yeah, of course. You gotta find out what killed them. You can't just be like, well, that's weird. Case closed. Roll the credits. Uh, what's that CSI thing? Bow! 
The police looked at what little evidence they did have and came back with the initial hypothesis poisoning. This deduction was easy. The lack of obvious physical damage to Su Feng and Li Ling, coupled with the fact that they were found in Lai Ling Ka, meant that there was little else that they could have suspected it to be. This hypothesis was then further reinforced when the initial autopsies were conducted. <laughs> I wish George had finished that sentence with when they found poison in them. Forensic pathologists meticulously examined their lifeless bodies, their skilled hands searching for the faintest trace of violence. Yet as the hours passed, nothing. The initial autopsy revealed no signs of physical damage, either internally or externally. No telltale bruising, no lacerations, no cuts, no puncture wounds. Nothing that the clear could clearly explain the tragic fate that had befallen Xu Feng and Li Ling. But one small detail did catch the coroner's attention amid the perplexity. The ever-so-slightly cherry-red hue to their skin. Oh, I know what that is. This is my favorite topic in the world. I mean, not my favorite topic. It's horrific. And it just, you know, look, if you've been on this show before, you'll know exactly what's coming next. Carbon monoxide. It's carbon monoxide poisoning. And that's one way um, the, the, the hose from the exhaust through the window when people kill themselves, that's because carbon monoxide, like it comes in and it poisons you and it makes you go red. That's one of the signs. Like if you're a little bit red, if you're a little bit red, then um, you could have carbon monoxide poisoning. My hands get red every winter. And I'm always like... Yeah, I assume it's just the cold. I should go to a dermatologist to get that checked out. I should probably use more hand cream. But it always reminds you of carbon monoxide poisoning. And I'm a hypochondriac. I look in the mirror. It's like my face red. No, it's not carbon monoxide poisoning. Jesus, I think about that way too much. A potential indication of carbon monoxide poisoning. This observation provided a crucial starting point, a glimmer of hope in the face of the enigmatic deaths. The invisible, odorless, and lethal gas may have been the silent killer that had claimed the lives of Xu Feng and Li Ling. But such a theory was beyond the means of the small Shatin precinct to verify. So Xu Feng and Li Ling's remains were then transported to police headquarters in Wan Chai, where the best morticians Hong Kong had to offer with the best equipment in the city could truly put the carbon monoxide hypothesis to the test and sure enough it proved to be correct Xu Feng and Li Ling had carbon monoxide levels in their blood of 213 and 228 parts per million respectively well in excess of the lethal limit this grim revelation brought no joy to the detectives leading the case but it did bring the satisfaction of knowing that they were ratcheting ever closer to a closure a big question now lay before them was this poisoning accidental or intentional pondering this question resulted in two further hypotheses being floated the first of these was the suicide pact theory the idea that both mother and daughter united by some unknown personal or emotional distress had entered into a pact to painlessly end their lives together the second was the accident theory the idea that the deaths were the result of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning likely stemming from some sort of mechanical failure with Sue things mini that's where i'd first go i'd be like look you're in a car um there's two of you i'd say that's probably unusual for like suicides like multiple like the uh suicide pack thing i'd be like it's a there's a there's a leak there's something wrong with the car that's probably where i'd be to explore the latter theory investigators called upon automotive experts to inspect the mini cooper for any sign of damage wear or malfunction that could have contributed to the release of carbon monoxide they were absolutely meticulous in this investigation, not only letting their own internal team on the loose on the task, but also flying in some of the Mini's designers from Germany to aid them in the inspection. <laughs> Although I do feel like those guys would be like, there is nothing wrong with the car. <laughs> uh, please, please don't make us recall all of the cars. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they would take that really seriously because um, 
they they want to fix that sort of stuff like they, they don't generally cover it up because then more people would die and there'd be many more lawsuits they carefully examine the vehicle's exhaust system engine and other components checking for any leaks corrosion or other issues that might have compromised the car's safety However, after a meticulous examination, the experts determined that the Mini Cooper was in perfect working condition with no apparent faults or defects that could have caused the carbon monoxide poisoning. This revelation completely eliminated the accidental poisoning theory and left the detectives only with the suicide pack theory to investigate. They interviewed friends, family members, and acquaintances, seeking insight into the emotional and mental state and well-being of both Xu Feng and Li Ling in the days and weeks leading up to their deaths. They tirelessly searched for any indications of depression anxiety or other psychological issues that might have driven the pair to such a drastic and heartbreaking decision and they did indeed uncover evidence that stress and anxiety had permeated throughout the core household yet as they pried ever deeper it became evidence that these turbulent emotions were not the result of any innate psychological issues with Xu Feng or Li Ling but rather the festering consequence of a betrayal most vile Kim Sung's infidelity Suddenly, the pieces of the jigsaw began to fit together in the minds of the detectives. Both the now clearly nonsensical suicide packs and accidental poisoning theories were cast aside as an altogether more plausible but more horrific theory came to the fore that the insidious perpetrator of these killings most foul could, in fact, be none other than Kim Sung, patriarch of the core family. If he really did it this way, this seems like... I mean, one, you're the husband, so you're like suspect number one. Two, they're going to write off the mini, they're going to write off the accident theory almost immediately when they realize that the car is fine. And the suicide pack theory, they're also going to be like, well, there's no evidence for that either. So they're definitely going to look for a suspect and it's definitely going to be you. Is this, was this your best shot at killing them? It's stupid. It was no welcome revelation, but it made sense. Kim Sun and Siu Fing absolutely hated each other by the time of the killings. Combine this with the failed attempt to divorce and the mistress who had been slowly trying to integrate into his family, as well as the fact that he was an accomplished anesthesiologist, and it all just made perfect sense. But circumstantial evidence does not a solid ground for conviction make. They needed irrefutable evidence. They needed to know beyond all doubt that not only Kim Sung was the killer, but also how he committed the foul act. Well, yes, that's what police work is for, so get cracking, boys. This brought them back to Su Fing's mini. If Kim Sung was indeed the killer, somewhere inside of it would be the evidence. They already knew that the car itself hadn't been tampered with, so they were looking for something that could have been used to slowly fill the car with carbon monoxide, something with a large volume but a small exit hole. Something with a large volume, but a small exit off. It's going to be like a canister of gas, right? Wasn't he the nitrous oxide dude? Could he have filled a nitrous oxide tank with carbon monoxide and then put that in the car? Oh, wait. <laughs> I just read the next line. Something like a deflated yoga ball that prior to this point had sat innocuously among the assorted bric-a-brac that was recovered from the car's boot. With furrowed brows and steady hands, the detectives inspected the ominous yoga ball, and the gravity of their discovery began to weigh on them. They were holding the very instruments of death that had mercilessly claimed the lives of Xu Fing and Li Ling. Is that right? Is that right that that yoga ball could contain enough carbon monoxide to kill two people in a car? And also, how would it exit the yoga ball? Would he just punch a little hole in it? Would that really be enough? This police were that is some genius police work. Even this, though this episode was called The Yoga Ball Murders, I wouldn't have got that. Not that I would know what a podcast about true crime titled an episode like a decade after this happened. <laughs> 
Yet despite the mounting evidence, they knew their case was still weak. They were acutely aware that a suitably expensive lawyer could see this evidence dismissed as circumstantial and secure an innocent verdict in the courts, and so, eager to see justice delivered for Siu Feng and Li Ling, the investigation continued. The yoga ball was carefully preserved, ensuring that no contamination or tampering could occur, and then it was packaged according to strict forensic guidelines. It was then transported to a specialized laboratory with all the necessary facilities and expertise to perform the delicate task of detecting the presence of the lethal gas. Upon arrival, a team of highly skilled forensic chemists took charge of the yoga ball, subjecting it to a battery of tests designed to reveal the slightest hint of carbon monoxide. These tests employed cutting-edge analytical techniques such as gas chromatography and mass spectrometry and to separate, to separate, identify, and quantify any trace elements present. As the process unfolded, the team worked diligently, knowing that the entire case hinged on the results of these tests. And sure enough, the innards of the yoga ball were absolutely saturated with traces of carbon monoxide. Okay, this guy's crime is not looking so stupid, because I think it would be totally reasonable for this never to have been, for the police to have just been like, it's a yoga ball. It's a yoga ball. I think they could, like, I don't know. That is a really good call from the police. So I think he thought maybe just no one would ever think about this. But they did. And that's amazing. This evidence changed everything. All they had to do was tie up a few loose ends in the investigation. Then they could arrest Kim Sun. Could they? Don't they need to tie him to the yoga ball? I mean, he's, they've got the motive. They've got the murder weapon. but they need, And they've got their dude in their mind. But they need to tie him to the weapon, no? The arrest was made at Chinese University of Hong Kong immediately following one of his lectures. Had Kim Sun been more observant, he likely would have noticed several new attendees to his lectures that day, a group of all-male students, all of whom seemed to be significantly older than everyone else on that side of the lectern, and none of whom seemed terribly interested in taking notes. Why did they do this? <laughs> Just go and arrest him. Why do you have to turn it into an unnecessary sting operation? When the lecture ended, those students approached Kim Sung and revealed themselves to be plainclothes police officers. They told him that he was under arrest and gave him two options. Either he would come with them quietly and have the dignity of a discreet arrest, or he could resist and get dragged off in cuffs in front of his students. Kim Sung, nothing if not an intelligent man, chose the former option. Yeah, because it's like, well, that's going to go two ways, isn't it? It's not like there's a third option. It's You're just going to be like, okay. Liar, 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 liar! When they finally got him back to the police station, the man before them couldn't have been more different from the man they had consoled only months earlier. Whereas before, Kim Sun was a calm and charismatic man who spoke, spoke with purpose, he was now an erratic, struggling to make eye contact, jittery in his chair, and cracking in his voice. Yeah, because he's terrified. He's just been arrested for a murder, which, I mean, allegedly at this point, he committed. I mean, definitely in the minds of the police. Mannerisms that only crescendoed as detectives began to dismantle his web of deceit and exposed his inconsistencies and contradictions that permeated his every word. Initially, Kimson vehemently denied ever having seen the yoga ball, but the detectives presented irrefutable evidence of his purchase, including receipts and surveillance footage. Mate, did you have a lawyer at this point? Where's your lawyer at? Because surely he's not going to go, the lawyer's not going to be like, well, just tell them you never saw the yoga ball. Wait, did you buy the yoga ball? <laughs> Dude. Trapped, he changed his narrative, weaving a story of the yoga ball being stolen from him in an attempt to cast suspicion on an unknown perpetrator. What are you up to? The investigators, however, remained undeterred, dissecting his account and exposing the glaring inconsistencies that rendered it highly improbable. As the detectives applied unrelenting pressure, Kimson's testimony morphed and evolved further still as he desperately sought an escape from the tightening noose. Suddenly, he was a fitness fanatic who bought the ball for personal use and had no idea how he got in the car. I don't know how that carbon monoxide got in there, no idea! Unconvinced, the investigators probed further, prompting him to change his story yet again. 
Unbeknownst to Kim's son, as he sat in the interrogation room, spinning his ever-changing tales, the detectives were waiting to reveal all. As they listened to his frantic fabrications, they were, in fact, handing him the very rope with which he would hang himself. The seasoned investigators remained outwardly stoic, allowing him to weave his web of lies, while inwardly they steeled themselves the inevitable moment when they would show their hand. He's probably, you gotta be like, holy shit, like, <laughs> I thought this was locked tight. I didn't think, he's probably in his mind like, just thinking, just screaming, oh my god, I didn't think you guys would figure this out. I mean, shit, well done. And what a moment it must have been for the detectives. There before them was a man with an ego so inflated that he thought he would actually be able to talk his way out of being caught red-handed. Soon enough, when it appeared as though Kim Sun had no more nonsense to spin, they revealed all. They told him that they knew he had bought the yoga ball, conducted bogus experiments to justify having it filled with carbon monoxide, and that he had intentionally left it in Su Fing's car before removing the stopper, and above all else, they revealed that he had that they had irrefutable evidence for every one of those claims. In short, they told him that he was well and truly up the proverbial creek without a paddle. The once chatty man then fell silent. And so, with it being clear that no further words, let alone a confession, would be coming from Kimson, there was nothing left to do but formally charge him and tell the judge that he was coming. The trial. And so, on the 21st of August 2018, with no confession having emerged among core Kim Sung's ever fluctuating ramblings and protestations of innocence, his trial commenced with Judge Judiano Ai Ling presiding. The case uh, was to be heard by the Hong Kong High Court, second only to the Court of Final Appeal as the Court of Highest Jurisdiction for Criminal Matters in the whole territory. In many ways, the emotionless postmodern facade of the building served as an apt metaphor for the cold and calculating story of betrayal in the case that was about to be heard within its walls. The prosecution, led by lead prosecutor Andrew Bruce, a man we already met back in our Bremer Hills Murders video. Okay, there we go. I guess, I mean, <laughs> the, the guy, the big prosecutor, he's going to take on the big cases. Opened by showcasing their extensive evidence and compelling case against Kim Sun, revealing a complicated lattice of deceit, treachery, and Machiavellian scheming. They asserted that he had leveraged his anesthesiology know-how to devise a cunning and heartless strategy to eliminate his spouse, Hugh Fing, and their childly Ling. Why did he want to kill the child? Was that just on? Was that just... She just happened to be in the car as well. The prosecution meticulously expounded on how he procured the essential apparatus and chemicals, including a yoga ball and the deadly scentless carbon monoxide. They then closed their opening remarks by asserting that Kim Sung had filled the yoga ball with gas, positioned it in his wife's car boot, and removed the stopper, creating a gas leak that would inevitably result in the untimely demise of the car's occupants. To reinforce their allegations, the prosecution showcased a litany of evidence such as security footage from both the university where he conducted his cover experiments and the store where he bought the yoga ball, phone logs, as well as expert insights in anesthesiology and forensic toxicology. They also summoned numerous witnesses, including co-workers, acquaintances, and kin, who attested to the cause turbulent marriage, his extramarital affair with Shara Lee, and his progressively unstable demeanor. I have to I'm so impressed with the police. I'm so impressed that they saw through all of this. They found footage of him purchasing a yoga ball. They looked at his experiments at work and were like, those aren't real experiments. It's amazing. Hong Kong police. Absolute mega props on this one. These accounts illustrated a harrowing portrait of a man whose yearning for a fresh start with his paramour impelled him to perpetrate a horrifying and inconceivable act against his own family. Furthermore, the prosecution highlighted the ever-changing nature of Kim Sun's testimony and the discrepancies in the explanation that he finally stuck to. They also highlighted the absence of sincere sorrow for his wife, remaining an emotionless obelisk in nearly all discussion regarding her. Tasked with the formidable challenge of spinning an innocent narrative out of the cavalcade of concrete evidence put before them, 
Kim Sun's defense team focused on arguing that the deaths of Wang Xiu Feng and Li Ling were a sorrowful accident, not a premeditated homicide scheme. Clearly, they realized from the offset there was no way an innocent verdict was being rendered, so they instead were just trying to minimize the sentence that was surely coming his way. Oh, it's just an accident. It's just an accident. I procured like carbon monoxide. I injected it into a yoga ball. I left it in the car. It just what is the accident play there? It's like whoops. I don't understand. That is get better lawyers. Or is that is that the only thing you could go for? You got surely, surely, with this preponderance of evidence, you gotta plead guilty and hope for like a reduced sentence. Though double murder, I mean you're going away forever, aren't you? Wait, do they have death penalty? They don't have death penalty in Hong Kong, I don't think. In pursuit of this end, the defense team offered several rebuttals and alternative interpretations of the prosecution's evidence. To start, the defense questioned the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses, suggesting that their testimonies could be influenced by personal feelings or biases towards the accused. They emphasized that these witnesses, particularly those discussing his troubled marriage and affair, lacked direct knowledge of the events preceding the death, suggesting that the testimony being presented was circumstantial at best and only being brought to the floor to bias the jury against Kim Sun. And then the defense went on to attack the forensic evidence. They contested the prosecution's claim that the presence of carbon monoxide in the victim's blood necessarily indicated foul play. Instead, they suggested it might have resulted from an accidental gas leak or another source. Yeah, except they tested the inside of the yoga ball, guys. I mean, this is better than the, uh, the previous argument, but still, it's not very good. To strengthen their argument, the defense brought in their own experts who cast doubt on the plausibility of the yoga ball being the source of the gas, asserting that the prosecution's theory was speculative and far-fetched. The defense team also endeavored to establish an alternate timeline leading up to the death. They claimed that their client's experiments had, in fact, been legitimate, which could account for his possession of the gas and the yoga ball. He needed the yoga ball for his experiments? Okay. They also highlighted the absence of a clear motive for him to kill his daughter, Li Ling, maintaining that her death was an unintended consequence of an experiment gone awry. You are stretching it so far. The final weapon in the arsenal was to humanize Kim Sun and evoke sympathy from the jury. They called upon a witness who could testify to his commitment as a father, his professional accomplishments, his past acts of kindness and generosity. The defense maintained that their client's actions following the deaths of his wife and daughter, which the prosecution interpreted as evidence of guilt, were actually manifestations of shock, grief, and confusion. The aforementioned disparate strategies formed a united front for Kimson's defense. The objective was to instill doubt in the jury's minds by questioning the prosecution's evidence and narrative while offering an alternative explanation for the heartbreaking events. By emphasizing supposed flaws in the evidence presented, the defense hoped that a more lenient sentence would be forthcoming. If you're hoping for a lenient sentence, why aren't you pleading guilty? What's going on? You're lo it's a lock, my guy. The most pertinent person to give evidence was Kim Sun's eldest daughter. During her emotional testimony, she recounted the day her father called her at university in Malaysia with the devastating news. She said that she had thought he was joking when he informed her of the tragic incident. However, her father sent her pictures, and she realized the gravity of the situation. That's f***ed up. In what sort of situation would they call you up and be like, nah, you're having a laugh, ain't you? You must be joking. This is you that's not very funny, Dad, but it's a joke. Right? He's like, no, no, I'll send you pictures of your dead mum and sister. That's f***ed up. What sort of, what, I feel like if I heard that in court, I'd be like, that's really bizarre. That's the relationship. This guy's going to prison. Guilty, 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 guilty. <laughs> she further recounted returning to Hong Kong the next day and found her father, who she described as usually being strong, to be an emotional wreck. Oh, she's defending him. Oh, 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 okay. 
And then she wound the clock back and spoke about her feelings of betrayal when she discovered her father's affair with her former tutor. Despite feeling betrayed, she explained how she later came to understand her father's actions as her parents had been getting along for some time. Her mother had initially been upset but eventually accepted the situation about a year before her death. So she must believe that he's innocent. Which I guess, I mean, that's a, that, that, is that gaslighting or whatever? But or, or just like believing that or finding it impossible to believe that someone who you love or are so close to did something like this? You'd be like, nah, no, no, no. And they'd be like, but look at all this evidence. You'd be like, yeah, 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 but you're mistaken. You're mistaken. It's my dad. Come on, it's my dad. I'm going to defend him in court. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Throughout her testimony, Kim Sung listened from the dark, occasionally smiling as his eldest daughter recalled fond memories with her younger sibling. However, when he heard about the immense pressure he had placed on his children, he was reduced to tears. Moving on from Kim Sung's daughter, many of those who testified were professional colleagues of his, including one Dr. Peter Chan, a fellow anesthesiologist who had worked alongside him. Dr. Chan recounted an incident in which his colleague had approached him with seemingly innocent inquiries about the lethal concentration of carbon monoxide and its potential effects on humans. Mate, have you not heard of Google? Like, I'm not saying like you should Google how to murder people, but it's better than being like, hey, 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 Peter. Sorry, what was his name? Hey, hey, Chan. Chan, Chan. You know anything about carbon monoxide poisoning and how much it takes to kill someone? Like, my, I mean... I mean, just someone, just curious, just just hypothetically. He went on to further explain that Kim Sung had shown a particular interest in understanding the precise amount of the gas needed to cause harm or death and the duration of exposure required to reach that lethal threshold. It was only after the tragic deaths of Siu Feng and Li Ling that Dr. Chan realized the sinister motives behind these questions. Dr. Chan testified about his colleague's knowledge of the properties and potential dangers of carbon monoxide, confirming that he had the expertise to handle and administer the gas. He also mentioned that the laboratory where they worked had the necessary equipment to fill a yoga ball with carbon monoxide. Furthermore, Dr. Chan recalled multiple conversations in which Kim Sung had mentioned using carbon monoxide to exterminate rats in his home time and time again, almost as if he was trying to pre-plant his innocence in his mind. Needless to say, Dr. Chan's testimony did not look good for Kim Sung, showing clear premeditation and intent on his part. Also, who the fuck's using carbon monoxide to kill rats? Like, we had rats in my house, and they were in the attic, not rats, little mice, they were in the attic and they are scamping around, and that's fine. And then one time they come downstairs and I'm like, okay, time to get the traps. And so we put traps, and now they're all dead. And now there's traps up there. And the first time it was like, I put like 12 traps out. There were nine dead mice, like nine dead mice. And I did not enjoy having to go up there and clear out these little mice bodies. <laughs> it was like a week later. And now there are traps there and the traps never trigger because the mice are all dead. <laughs> You know what I didn't use? Carbon monoxide, because that would be insane. The prosecution used Dr. Chan's testimony to further reinforce this notion of premeditation. They explained how he had conducted extensive online research on carbon monoxide poisoning and had even ordered books on the subject. This collection of facts only served to strengthen the prosecution's case against Kim Sung, painting a picture of a man determined to eliminate his family and start anew with his lover. But Dr. Chan was not the only one of Kim Sung's colleagues to present damning evidence against him, as Linda Wong, a laboratory technician, spoke about the security protocol and inventory controls in place at the lab. She mentioned that carbon monoxide was stored in a restricted area, but as a senior researcher and anesthesiologist, Kim Sung would have had unrestricted access to the gas. She also revealed that a small amount of carbon monoxide was unaccounted for in the lab's inventory during the time leading up to the murders, further implicating him in the crime. I do wonder what the, the, the use in a lab of carbon monoxide is. As far as I'm aware, it's just a horrible poison that kills people silently. 
What do they use carbon monoxide for? Other colleagues of Kimson also came forward not to speak of his experiments, but about his and Shara Lee's relationship. They stated that the two were frequently seen working together on various research projects and often engaged in private conversations. While their interactions appeared professional in nature, their closeness hinted at a deep connection between them, adding to the suspicions about their extramarital affair. These testimonies... Look, there's another thing, right? Like, I don't want to be... Should I say... If a dude is having an affair with a younger woman and the reason that he doesn't like his wife anymore is because she got a little bit older how do you think that relationship's gonna work out for you how do you think that's gonna go he's having an affair and you're younger but at some point you're gonna get older and what do you think happens then just do people not think about this very much their statements helped build a compelling narrative against Kimson, firmly establishing both his motive for doing it and the means by which he committed his crimes. As testimonies began to pile up, there were several emotional outbursts from the family members of the victims, particularly when the details of the autopsies were revealed. The graphic descriptions of the victims' final moments, as well as the physical effects of carbon monoxide poisoning, were too much to bear for some, leading to tears and expressions of anguish. Wait, I thought being poisoned by carbon monoxide was, like... Not long-term, because then you get headaches and stuff, and it's unpleasant. But if you're just suddenly poisoned by carbon monoxide, I feel like, haven't I seen, there's, the, there's that amazing video, amazing video, I've talked about it before. And it's not carbon monoxide poisoning, but it's basically the same thing. Like, uh, the body doesn't get rid of the carbon monoxide because the guy's put in, like, an altitude chamber. And he's just like, he's all smiles. Like, the guy in the altitude chamber is like, you need to put your mask on, because if you don't, you're going to die. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the guy's like, you're going to put the mask on? And he's like, yeah, 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 I will. And he's just sitting there like an idiot, not putting his mask on. But he doesn't see, and he will die. And the guy has to put the mask on for him. It's crazy. I thought it was like not an unpleasant way to go. But despite these heartfelt and understandable interruptions, fresh testimonies continued to pile up, and following his former colleagues, a plethora of friends, family, and acquaintances took the stand. The first was a woman by the name of Mei Li, Siu Fing's sister. She gave a deep insight into her sister's collapsing marriage, recounting instances of heated arguments and tension between her sister and Kim Sung. She also mentioned that her sister had confided in her regarding Kim Sung's emotional distance and their lack of communication. Meili also revealed the near-complete mental collapse that her sister suffered following the exposure of her husband's affair with Shara Lee. Meili was followed by David Chen, a close family friend of the course. He, too, shared his observations of Kimson's behavior towards his wife and children. He noted that while he appeared to be a caring father to most of his children, he seemed to have grown increasingly distant from not just his wife, but also Li Ling. To explain this, David recalled a particular incident during a family during a family gathering where Kimson spent most of his time on the phone, barely engaging with his wife or daughter. This testimony, more than any other, was most damning for Kimson because, let's be frank, while everyone in the court was fully convinced he intended to kill his wife by this point, the question of whether or not he had intended to kill Li Ling was still very much in the air. Does that matter? Like, he did kill her though. And he already did one murder, so surely that's like life in prison, right? David's testimony certainly didn't lend itself towards a favorable answer to that question. A final acquaintance testimony of interest is that of Susan Tan, a friend of both Kimson and Xu Fing, who by pure chance had bumped into Kimson and Shara Lee out and about on multiple occasions. Although she could not confirm the nature of their encounter, she confirms that she certainly didn't get a platonic impression from them. These testimonies from family and friends further damned Kimson, and the attitude of the court regarding his innocence was blatantly apparent for all to see. <laughs> Imagine his lawyer, he's like, mate, it's not looking good, is it? It's not looking good. But still, there was more to come. The 
judge's gavel would not fall until all evidence had been heard. This is a lock-in, though. If this guy goes anywhere but prison for a really long time, you're going to be quite disappointed. The next testimony of interest came from investigators and forensic experts, many of whom took to the stand to present their findings. And I don't think it's a spoiler at this point to say that it didn't go well for Kim's son. The main, main such testimony of interest is that of Dr. Helen Wong, a forensic toxicologist who performs the Wan Chai autopsies that we discussed earlier. She explained the results of the toxicology test performed on the victims, confirming that both Xu Feng and Li Ling had lethal levels of carbon monoxide in their blood. She further stated that the concentration of the gas in the car was so high that it could only have originated from an external source, such as the yoga ball, rather than a mechanical fault of the vehicle. That matter of potential fault with the Mini was further explained by automotive expert Richard Ewan, who had assisted the police with its analysis. He explained that after a thorough investigation, the vehicle was found to be in perfect working condition with no defects in the exhaust system or other components that could have caused a carbon monoxide leak. He also went out of his way to explain the process by which his team had tested it, preemptively dismissing any potential attacks from the defense regarding the quality of his methodology. His testimony confirmed beyond all doubt to the court that the yoga ball was the source of the deadly gas. Needless to say, things were looking really, really bad for Kim Sung, and at this point, a guilty verdict was all but assured. I felt a guilty verdict was all but assured like 20 minutes ago, to be honest. But there is one player in this tragic tale that we haven't analyzed much yet. One whom I'm sure is biting away at your curiosity. Wait, who? Charlie? Oh, the, the paramour! The woman he's having an affair with. Was she actually involved in the murders herself? Oh my god, I didn't even think about that! That'd be a shit policeman. <laughs> this is amazing police work. I know that's less amazing, and that's just me being dim. Even George is like, I'm sure you're all curious, and 90% of you are probably screaming like, Simon, what are you talking about? How did you not know this? But yeah, good point. Good point. It should come as no surprise here that the court also had this question very much on their minds. <laughs> Can't believe that I'm surprised by this. I'm so small-brained. So let's start answering this by looking at her testimony and the court's response there too. When Shara Lee took to the stand, she confirmed that she had been involved in a romantic relationship with Kimson for over two years. Wait, wasn't it going on? It was going on a lot longer than that. Didn't they say it was, wasn't it almost like a decade? She claimed that they initially bonded over their shared interest in medical research and grew closer over time, maintaining a secretive affair by meeting in discreet locations and communicating through private channels to avoid detection. Wait, didn't they just say that? Didn't some woman just testify that she saw you hanging out with him and that didn't look platonic? That's not being subtle, is it, Shara? Shara also testified about the various research projects that she and Kim Sung had collaborated on, including several co-authored papers. She claimed that Kim Sung had been the instigator of the affair, saying that he had confided in her about his dissatisfaction with his marriage and his desire for a future with her. But as much as she readily admitted to the affair, Shara maintained that she had no knowledge of her lover's plans to harm his wife or daughter and was shocked and devastated by the tragic events. When questioned about her knowledge of Dr. Kaur's access to carbon monoxide and the yoga ball, Shara admitted that she was aware of his expertise in anesthesiology and his work with various gases in their research, as well as her involvement in the experiments. Yet she denied any involvement in the plot to murder Xu Feng and Li Ling, maintaining that she was just an innocent bystander. Shara Lee's testimony was crucial in establishing a motive for the crime, as the prosecution argued that Kim Sung's desire to be with her had driven him to commit the murders. Her statements, combined with the testimonies of other witnesses, painted a picture of a man willing to go to great lengths to free him 
himself from an unhappy marriage and pursue a new life with his lover, as well as a seemingly innocent woman who got caught up in the deranged plot of her lover, completely unbeknown to herself. Okay, so, I mean, what we can take away from that is, like, either way, that's exactly what she'd said. She would have said. So, okay. And with the end of Charlie's testimony, the trial started to come to an end. Both the prosecution and the defense read out their statements, and the jury left to deliberate, and after seven long hours, a verdict was returned. Really surprised it took seven hours, to be honest. Judge Judiana called for silence and asked the foreperson to stand and announce the jury's decision. As the words, guilty of both counts of murder, echoed through the courtroom, a wave of emotion washed over the spectators. Some wept, others gasped, but all were deeply affected by the gravity of the moment. These emotions only crescendoed further when the sentence was read out. Life in prison. Kim Zone, on the other hand, did nothing other than shake his head at the children, who were sat in the front stands as he was led away from the courtroom. Yeah, um, kind of predictable. Glad he got life. I hope that means life. Um, because, yeah, guy seems like a bit of a piece of shit, doesn't he? Aftermath. Immediately following the reading of the verdict, Kim Sung was led away from the High Court in handcuffs for a one-way trip to that old haunt of this channel, Stanley Prison. Supposedly, he was in tears, the weight of the guilty verdicts and subsequent life sentence settling heavily upon him. His once-prominent career as a respected anesthesiologist now lay in ruin, and his future would be spent behind the cold, unforgiving walls of Asia's most secure prison. Really? Really? Most secure? And Asia's big. And there's lots of scary prisons in Asia. I made a video about that one in Bangkok where they send the drug traffickers. It's like, oh my God, don't traffic drugs. Oh my God, just don't do it. You don't need the money that badly, I promise. Upon arrival, Kim Sung was processed and assigned a prison number, effectively stripping him of his identity and reducing him to just another inmate. An ironic twist of fate for a man who so clearly held himself in such high regard. He was then led to his cell, a small cramped space furnished with only a bed, a toilet, and a tiny window that offered a sliver of sunlight, a stark contrast to the life of comfort and prestige he had once enjoyed. As the days turned into weeks and then months, Kim Sung struggled to adjust to his new reality. The monotonous routine of prison life, wake-up calls, roll calls, meals, and lights out was a far cry from the intellectually stimulating work that he'd been accustomed to. His once brilliant minds, which had been responsible for groundbreaking research and medical advancements, now languished in the confines of the prison exactly where it belonged. You'll be pleased to hear that Kim Sung continued to have a very miserable time of it as it went on. Sources for this time are few and far between, but from the few available, namely the testimonies of former inmates and a chaplain who has spoken on the matter publicly, the particularly heinous nature of his crimes made him a marked man among his fellow inmates. Yea, he killed a kid, killed his daughter. Well, I'm sure there's other people in the prison who killed their wives, but like, that's, that's fucked up. From the first day he stepped into Stanley Prison, his days were filled with taunts, threats, and even physical attacks against him. In response to all of this, the Hong Kong Correctional Services, being the professional organization that they are, took measures to ensure his safety, and he was moved to protective custody, well away from the general population. But while the guards could protect him from the physical pain of a stairwell shiving, they could not protect him from the mental pain of being left alone with his own thoughts, and accordingly, it appears as though his mental state completely collapsed. Weird. We're drifting towards him killing himself, right? The daily stress of living in constant fear, the haunted memories of his daughter, the harsh realities of the concrete cage he found himself in, all proved to be too much for him. He maintained his innocence, however, and in the months following the trial, his legal team filed an appeal against his conviction and life sentence. They maintained that the evidence presented at trial was insufficient to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Bro, there was a lot of evidence. 
Um, and the jury's decision was influenced by the emotionally charged testimonies of witnesses, adding further that the case against him was largely circumstantial and that the prosecution had failed to establish a direct link between him and the deaths of his wife and daughter. As the appeal process commenced, his legal team presented 44 separate grounds of appeal. They claimed a lack of concrete proof tying Kim Sun to the crime scene and questioned the reliability of the forensic evidence that had been presented at trial. Moreover, the defense sought to highlight the possibility that the deaths were accidental rather than the result of a premeditated murder plot. However, these rehashings of previously heard arguments did not win favor with the courts, and on the 7th of June 2022, his appeal was completely rejected. Oh my god, didn't this, this all happen like years ago? Legal process is slow. In their ruling, the judges stated that the evidence against Kim Sun was overwhelming and that the jury's decision had been supported by a compelling array of testimonies, forensic findings, and circumstantial evidence. The appellate judges also noted that the prosecution had successfully established a strong motive for the crime, pointing to the troubled marriage and his desire to be with his mistress, Shara Lee. This decision marked the end of a long and tumultuous legal battle, leaving Kim Sung with no way out and no option but to face the consequences of his actions and remain in prison to this day. Okay, never mind. I thought with the, like, prison was so hard, his mental state deteriorated, blah, 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 blah. I really thought that was leading to uh, suicide. But I guess not. But what of Shara Lee? Her once private affair with Kim Sung and the double murder that resulted from it had been thrust into the public eye, and she was left to face scrutiny, suspicion, and the judgment of the city. And at least from my own experiences out and about in Hong Kong, George lives in Hong Kong, she has not been treated favorably by the court of public opinion. There are many that believe she must have played a more significant role in the tragic deaths of Siu Fing and Li Ling. Rumors circulated that she had been aware of her lover's murderous plans or had even been complicit in the crime. However, during the trial, Shara Lee had vehemently denied any knowledge of Kim Sun's intentions or involvement in the plot to murder his wife and daughter. The prosecution, too, had been unable to provide concrete evidence linking her to the crime. As a result, she managed to evade any criminal charges, allowing her to walk free from the courtroom and rebuild her life. This proved easier said than done, however. In the months following the trial, Shara Lee found herself the subject of relentless media attention and public scrutiny. Her every move was analyzed and dissected, and she was hounded by reporters seeking interviews or exclusive insights into her relationship with Kim Sun. She eventually faded from the public spotlight, however, and got on with her life and remains a free woman in Hong Kong to this very day. Which, um, yeah, of course she would, because she's not guilty of anything. And so, with that, the story of the Yoga Ball murders comes to a close. Look, in videos such as this, it's inevitable that far more of the script will be devoted to the horrific perpetrators of the crimes than the victims. That's an unfortunate reality of the medium. But it being a necessity doesn't mean we have to like it. So as we bring this video to a close, let's do what we can to right that wrong. Let's cast the name of today's murderer from our minds and fill that space in our brains with the names of today's victims. Kwa Siu Fing and Kwa Li Ling. Two lives tragically cut short by a monster. One a loving mother who battled inner demons as she desperately tried to keep the family she loved together, and the other, a much-loved daughter who had nothing but kindness for those around her. If only one part of today's video cements itself in your mind, let it be this, not the monster who so cruelly ended their lives, not the intrigue surrounding it, the kind and gentle souls of Kwa Siu Fing and Kwa Li Ling. Appendices.
Number one, so contrary on my research methodology for this piece, okay then, the story of the Ogobo murders presented several hurdles I've not had to jump through before in researching Hong Kong criminality. Okay, and George has jumped through some hopes previously. He's told me before, and he's told us before in like scripts, like he went to this like archive, he talked to this police officer, he's been, you know, far. Uh, primarily owing to how recent the case is. It'd been so recent then that archival material was unavailable and individual officers would not discuss it. This is a result of Hong Kong's very strict data protection laws, which keep such information sealed for quite some time to protect the privacy of victims and their surviving families. This is, of course, a great idea, and make no mistake, I applaud the Hong Kong government for taking such efforts to protect the victims of crime, but for the purpose of script production, it did mean that I had to adopt a different strategy, piecing the story together from information which was already available in the public domain, namely scraps of media reporting and official government documentation. This then presented fresh challenges. The latter such source is very useful indeed, but the former such source, well, less so. I've said before how horrifically unreliable press reporting can be at the best of times, so to get around this I opted to use nearly exclusively Chinese-language news sources. I can vouch from personal experience how absolutely horrific English-language journalism in Hong Kong is, going with the narrative. <laughs> Throwing of shade there, are we, George? <laughs> Going with a narrative that has the greatest weight of numbers behind it, as well as the best sources for its information. This has led to the script being a bit lighter in on in-depth details compared to my usual output, but it was the nature of the beast with this one. I think we did a good job nonetheless. You did do a good job, George. Well done. Number two. A mainstay of these videos at this point is my falling to my knees and I know what he's going for. He's going to be like, Hong Kong's safe and fine. Our beloved audience is to ap appreciate the fact that the extreme instances of Hong Kong criminality that we cover on this channel are in no way reflective of the city itself and today is no exception. For example, in 2020, Hong Kong reported a total of 27 homicides, which translates to a homicide rate of 0.4 per 100,000 people. This figure stands in stark contrast to those reported by some major cities in the West. For instance, in 2020, New York City had a homicide rate of 3.8. That's nearly 10 times more per 100,000, while the rate of Chicago is a staggering 28.3. What's going on, Chicago? Oh, my Lord. And I don't exactly think of New York as a safe city. I've seen CSI New York. They had a murder every week. And the fact that the Ogobor murders are such a recent case, this disclaimer feels even more pertinent than usual. I hardly want you all to think that the city, which has given me so much over the years, is some kind of crime-ridden hellhole. I gotta know, like, I live in Prague in the Czech Republic. What is the murder rate here? Prague murders per 100,000. The latest data I can find is 2020, and it's 0.72 per 100,000. So... It's more dangerous than Hong Kong, <laughs> but only a little. <laughs> Jesus, 3.8 in New York. Number three, it's also important that we take time to clarify some points regarding Shara Lee. No doubt you all picked up on my very strong doubts as to her innocence in today's video, but that's just my opinion. It's very important to stress that I'm not a judge, and while I may have my specific doubts, she has been through the legal system and a, prose and a prosecution was not pursued. Clearly, the Hong Kong justice system has evidence that the public is not privy to, or else a prosecution would indeed have been pursued. Given the fact that she was, and still is, a person of reasonable prominence in Hong Kong, it's worth stating this clearly. Don't have to go to harasser, however egregious, you may find the crimes of her former lover. Yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that she was involved in it. I guess George has a lot more depth in this because he reads all of the sources and stuff and then puts this together. But I'm kind of like, I don't know, doesn't seem to be anything there, does there? It's probably why they didn't pursue a prosecution. Anyway, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for being here. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, please do uh, leave a review for this podcast. Or if you're watching it on YouTube, hello, subscribe, like, and I'll see you next time.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.